Today is Palm Sunday. The last time I was here, I believe it was back in August, I actually taught the triumphal entry. That was where the Lord led me that time. So I know that's here chapter 12, but we're going to do the day before. Um, the first, really the first eight verses. Um, I just, uh, I felt like that this is where the Lord was leading me when, when Pastor Rob called me initially and asked me to share these last two Sundays. This was the message that the Lord had really placed on my heart. And, uh, and then I was praying about what last message, last week's message was going to be. And it, it was what it was. I actually had initially thought that I was going to be doing 1 Corinthians 8. So I had been studying um, Christian liberties and so forth. And I, I guess that was just for me because I go on the website here about a month ago and I see that uh, you guys are journeying through 1 Corinthians. And so I'm like, I'm, that's, that was not the Lord. And so I began to, to pray and he led. Uh, it's really just this section of scripture. Last week we looked at Martha. And the, the wonderful things that the Lord revealed to her, he, he revealed himself to her. Really, he revealed his glory to her. And the transformative work uh, that that brings. Um, this week, I thought we would focus on Mary. So Martha and now Mary, and really Lazarus is kind of mixed in with, with both of them. So we're in John chapter 12, and we're going to read uh, the first eight verses. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, I'm sorry, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box. And he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, as we continue to worship you in the study of your word, as you continue to proclaim your greatness, we pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would do so to us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move in our hearts and that you would soften our hearts. And that, Lord, those things that you want to speak to each one of us, Lord, as you know, even more so than we do, where we are this morning and what it is you have planned to do in us and with us. So we pray that you would take this time and that you would take your word and that, Lord, you would magnify your word uh, to each one of us, Lord, so that we would be transformed, so that we would be cleansed, so that we would be renewed and even born again by the power of your word. 
So let your word, Lord, penetrate to the deepest reaches of who we are. And may it do a work of healing and a work of renewal and a work of comfort. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, six days before the Passover, this event, of course, closely follows Lazarus is being raised from the dead. Jesus has now come into Bethany. You remember he was outside of the town, and Mary and Martha went out to him, and then he went to the gravesite. Well, now he's come in to Bethany, um, and this is six days before the Passover. So, like I said, the next morning would be the triumphal entry. And that morning, of course, had been prophesied. Jesus, when he wept over Jerusalem in uh, Luke, uh, what is that, 19, I think? Um, he weeps over Jerusalem, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you would have known, even in this your day, this is your day. This was the day that was prophesied. That's, that's today. It was prophesied several hundred years before it happened. God on the very specific day. Well, that's today, Palm Sunday, but this event happens the night before. And that's kind of our time micro. There's six days before the Passover. Jesus is in Bethany where Lazarus was. So Lazarus is there. He, had, he was dead, of course. Jesus had raised him from the dead. And then verse 2, it says, there they made him a supper. Now, there is a participle missing there in, in my version. In the, in the Greek text, maybe in, if you have a different translation, it says so there, or it says therefore. Um, and it's, it's really there in the Greek. I looked at it. Oun is the Greek word, and it's, it's the word for, for uh, therefore or for so or because of this. Um, that word is there. So they are in Bethany. And therefore, Lazarus was there, and so they made him a supper. So it would, it would appear that the dinner appears to be honoring Jesus for the sake of raising Lazarus. And Lazarus is mentioned here uh, two times here in two verses. So it, it would seem that uh, the therefore is what it's there for is, is because they're underscoring that this is to celebrate and to honor the Lord Jesus for his marvelous work. And uh, Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary, verse 3, took a pound of very costly oil. But before we get there, it says Martha served. They made him a supper and Martha served. Now, in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14, those are the parallel accounts of this, of this occurrence. It says that they're in the house of Simon the leper. Um, that's the only mention of Simon the leper. I'm, I'm assuming that those in Bethany or John's uh, recipients of this uh, gospel know who Simon the leper was, but clearly it was someone who Jesus healed. And because they are at his house, and this dinner is in Bethany at Simon the leper's house, and Martha is serving, some speculate that perhaps uh, Simon is Martha's husband. Uh, it, I don't know. That's pure speculation. They clearly knew one another, and they clearly were close to one another. That is Simon and Martha and, and the family, because here Martha is, is serving everything. Now imagine, imagine Martha here uh, in her service. 
Imagine the gratitude. Imagine the, the, the thankfulness. Imagine with what exuberance and joy and, and just love that she is doing. She's doing all she can to, to serve the Lord Jesus. I mean, the Lord has just given her a wonderful, really the, 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 a paramount revelation of the necessity of having a, an, an understanding of the glory of God. And that is transformative. And it changed her whole life. And so here she is serving. And imagine Lazarus. Lazarus is here. Lazarus, who was dead, he's now alive and he's at the table. Imagine how he's feeling. You know, and the gratitude in his heart. Actually, I had a thought as I was, as I was uh, pouring over that. I thought, you know, maybe he wasn't so glad. I mean, he, he was in the presence of the Lord for four days, right? Maybe... Uh, He's like, wait a minute, you know, I, I was liking it better there, and you guys dragged me back. No, that's not, that's not what happened, of course. The Lord, the Lord was glorified, but we don't know. I mean, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, it says in 2 Corinthians 5. So we know that Lazarus was, was with the Lord, but the Lord brought him back for his, for his glory, to, to, to reveal his glory. But Lazarus is there, so you have all of this going on here. You just have this immense love and, and, and thankfulness going on. Here, here Mary, here comes Mary. So here's Mary. She took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard. She anoints the feet of Jesus, and she wipes his feet with her hair. And the house was um, filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now this, of course, is a very unusual event. It's not, this is not just a normal thing. This isn't, oh, you know, so-and-so, you know, wiped someone's feet with, with her hair. You're like, yeah. It's a, it's a very obvious, a very unusual event. Um, and really, in, as I was looking at it, and as I was thinking about its unusualness, um, if that's a word, it, it, unusual in, th in three ways that I, that I saw. It was unusual in the timing of it first. You see, the timing of it, she's doing this during dinner. It, it was customary, and it wasn't uncommon for the host of a house to wash a guest's feet when, when the guest came in. It was normally, it was considered a common courtesy. You, you, people wore sandals, uh, the roads were dusty, and it was just a common thing, a common courtesy for, for uh, when a guest arrived that the host would wash their feet. And it was normally done by whoever was the lowest socially in, in the household. If it was a, a servant or maybe a, you know, a younger child or what have you, that was the person who normally washed the feet. Usually, when a guest arrived, their feet were washed with water and then they, put a, they would put a little dab of perfume on their head, kind of to anoint their head as it were. Here, she does it in the middle of the meal, and uh, here, uh, she is not using water. She's using this oil. So unusual in its timing, when, unusual in its method. Because here, she's not using water, she's using perfume. And rather than using a towel, which is what normally one would do, she's using her hair to dry his feet. In Matthew's account, it says that she also poured the oil on his head and then 
Mark's account, it says that she broke the flask before she did this. So the timing of it was unusual. The method of it was unusual. And, and the means, I was trying to come up with another word, <laughs> means, I guess. So take that for what it is. The means was also very unusual, the way she did it. Because she, instead of using water, she uses a very costly oil. Of course, this is, it says here that it's spikenard. And spikenard oil evidently is a, an oil that is extracted from the root of the nard plant. The nard plant is native to India. So they take this plant and they extract the oil from the roots by crushing the, the, the roots of the plant. And then they take the oil very costly. Very expensive. It says here that Luke, uh, in rather, uh, in Judas, Judas, when he objects, 300 denarii. Actually, Matthew, Matthew says, um, Mark says that, yeah, they valued it at that. It was valued. Uh, Judas is giving assent that, yeah, that was its value. Now, a denarii, was a day's wage. So whatever you, whatever you would earn for a day. So a man who was a, uh, uh, an employee somewhere and he was supporting himself, he was supporting his family, his daily wage was a denarii. So now you don't work on the weekends, you don't work on the Sabbath and so forth. So you could kind of really add this up. This is about a year's wage. It's, it's a significant amount of money. Uh, whatever modern... Uh, uh, equivalent would be, you know, uh, really a, a year's wage for someone to support themselves at the, at the very least, you know, probably 25, I don't know, thousand or so, and all the way up to, to wherever, whatever one would earn to support themselves and their family. It's a significant cost. And not only is it the oil itself that is a significant cost, but the alabaster flask itself was also significant. Alabaster, it's a very fine variety of stone, I've, I've worked with it. It's kind of like a marble. It's not a marble because it's a gypsum base, but it's a, it's, it's a soft stone like that. And, it, and it's, often it's what's used for carving because of its softness. Now, there is another form of it that comes uh, from, you know, some, there's some around the Egypt area, and there are some that's kind of around the Middle Eastern area, up a little north, but they're a little bit different in variety. And... Uh, both of them are similar in, in that they're easily carved. Uh, one is a little softer than the other. One, you could, like, you could take your fingernail and kind of scratch it, and, and it would actually leave a scratch. But the, the other kind that they uh, carve up that are used for, for, for these kinds of purposes for perfume and so forth, that's a little bit harder. I was looking at examples of alabaster and things that they have found. Uh, when they unearthed uh, King uh, Tut's tomb, there were several carvings of things that were carved out of alabaster, sculptures, and there was actually some flasks and so forth that were made from the alabaster. It's a translucent stone. It's a beautiful stone. And uh, uh, used here in this case uh, to seal it. it. It could preserve something that was very precious. So the flask itself was very precious. And here she breaks the flask. She renders the flask. I mean, she's done. She's done with it. She's pouring it out. She's, she's pouring out everything in it and, she, and even the flask itself. She made the, ask, the act that much more costly in doing so. Now, 
what's going on here? There's a couple of things going on. But what we have here, I believe, is probably the best example of worship that is found in the New Testament. Mary is worshiping. Interestingly, Jesus interacting with another woman in John chapter 4. We won't turn there, but it's the woman from Samaria, and you, you may remember the account. He gives in that passage a very clear, probably the clearest definition of what worship is in the entire Bible in, in one sentence. She's asking Jesus, that is the Samaritan woman, is asking Jesus where one ought to worship. Should we be worshiping here on Mount Gerizim, or should we be worshiping in Jerusalem? And Jesus said, no, no, woman, it's neither here nor in Jerusalem that one worships. The hour is coming, John 4, 23. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers of God will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. So here in that definition, Jesus gives a, a, a very concise, a very clear uh, definition of what worship is. And he gives three components to it. Worshiping in spirit, worshiping in truth, and the Father seeking such. So you could say spirit, truth, and purpose. The Father is seeking such to worship him. That's the purpose. That is his purpose. So let's look at those three and let's compare those to what Mary is doing here and get a, a good example, a good uh, understanding of what worship is. First it says, Jesus said that those worship in spirit. Worship is a matter of spirit. It's not a matter of location. It's not where we worship, but how we worship. God is omnipresent. That is, he is everywhere. We can't go anywhere, it says, and flee from his presence, it says in Psalm, what is that? I just drew a blank. <laughs> 19? 139, that's right, I'm sorry. Yeah, 139, thank you. Um, Psalm 139, we, we, we cannot flee from his presence. He is omnipresent, so where we are is not important if we're worshiping. What God desires is that from our heart, we would acknowledge who he is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. God desires our heart. Worship is first the matter of the heart. You see, it's from the heart that all of our affections spring from. It is in our heart where those things that we are drawn to, those things that we adore, reside. And God desires that we would adore him inwardly that we would love him entirely not just the outward expressions but inwardly what is motivating those expressions that's what worship is worship is that our hearts would be completely his mary here she is holding nothing back she is pouring everything out as it were uh, over the lord most uh, think that this vial, where does she get this vial? Where does she get something that is so precious? Most believe that this vial was her dowry. 
Because a woman, uh, often to be married in that culture, needed a dowry, a backup, if you will. And, and breaking it and pouring it out, she is literally giving Jesus her earthly all. Not only is she giving Jesus her earthly all, she is also committing to Jesus her future. Because without a dowry, her prospect, her marriage, would greatly diminish. So she's pouring everything out over the Lord in worship. Worship is spirit. This was an act of devotion, an act of adoration, the fullest expression of love on a human level that could be given. Spurgeon said uh, it was very costly what she did, but it had not cost a penny too much now that it could be used upon him. There was a pound of it, but there was none too much for him. It was very sweet, but not too sweet for him. God wants our heart. That the very seat, the very deepest part of our affection would be his. He is Jehovah Kana. That he's, he's the God who is jealous. There is a jealous love that he has for us. He wants us to love him with all we are. That's what worship is. Worship is spirit. It's not outward expressions. It's not just singing some songs and going through the motions. The heart of true worship, Psalm 116, 12 through 14 says, What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. I will give God my all. That's the true heart of worship. Jesus, of course, he describes the opposite in Matthew 15, talking about just those who go through the motions, those who just uh, rely upon the liturgy. Those, uh, he says, those, these people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as uh, doctrines, the commandments of men. Their hearts are far. Their mouths are there. The motions are there, but their hearts are far. They're, they're relying on the ritual. They're not relying on the heart. Mary, is, she's broken it. There's nothing left. This, this reminds me of a story in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We won't turn there, but it reminds me of the story of the bronze serpent. You guys might remember what happens in uh, the children of Israel. They're grumbling and complaining again in the wilderness. And the Lord sends fiery serpents. So these red serpents uh, start slithering through the camp and they start biting people when people are dying. And they cry out to Moses and Moses, the Lord instructs Moses, uh, if you lift up a serpent on a pole, make a bronze serpent, the figure of a serpent, and put it on a pole. And if people would just look to the serpent, they will be healed. So the people looked to the serpent, and they were healed. By the way, that's the same symbol for the medical profession today. You see that on the, the thing, the, the pole and the serpent, the healing, you see. 
you know what happened with the children of Israel, right? They take the serpent, the bronze serpent, and instead of it just being a reminder of what God had done in their hearts, they start worshiping the serpent. They start worshiping the image. And then later on, Hezekiah gets it, and he grinds it to powder. He's destroying all the idols from Israel, and he grinds it to powder, and he calls it Nehushtan. It's just a thing of brass. It's just a chunk of brass. That's all it is. It's not, it's not the ritual. It's not the image. It's only representation. Now, we do the same thing. What, what are modern-day Nehushtans? if you will. A, a, a big one is baptism. I, 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 as a pastor, I have many people, hey, I want, you to, I want you to baptize me or I want you to baptize my kid because, because then you know, I'll be in with God. No. Nehushtan. It's just a thing of brass. It, it's, 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 the Lord commands us to do it. But we don't do it in order to obtain favor. We do it be, out of an expression of a transformed life. What, you know, even, even singing songs, even coming to church or giving an offering or, or doing good deeds, whatever. We rely on all of these things. Nehushtan, that's all it is. The, the alabaster flask, thank goodness she broke it because somebody would have got it and then worshipped it, probably. You know, oh, this was the, you know, one of the relics, right? This was the... the flask and you know put it right next to one of the nails and one of the slivers from the cross and so forth I and mean, we're all prone to this no one's immune to any of these things but mary she just gives herself it's as if she says lord here i am broken all of me i am yours worship is a matter of spirit it's 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 our heart it's also a matter of truth Truth. Truth speaks of honesty. It speaks of honesty with God. It speaks of transparency before him. 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 says, if we, if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Worship is also a matter of truth. This describes a life of truthfulness. One who is living truthfully. In 1 John here, he's, he's, he's depicting the person who, who is professing to have fellowship with Christ, but secretly is living a life of darkness. professing to be a follower of Jesus Christ, yet unwilling to live, to leave the life of sinfulness. That is, living a life of dishonesty, trying to hide from everyone, including God, who they really are. Doing all that one can do to keep up the appearances before everyone, trying to deceive everyone, and yet all of the while, the only person who is being deceived is the one. The reason that 
uh, one is deceiving themselves in this instance is because we can't hide anything from God. I mean, the mere notion that God doesn't see, if, if we have convinced ourselves of that, well, we have deceived ourselves. You know, one can be deceived. You know, someone could come up and tell me something, and, and, and I, they could con me out of something, or they could deceive me in, in some way. If I believe it, well, okay, I was deceived. But if I deceive myself, I've done it. There's no powerful, there is no more powerful deception than self-deception. We deceive ourselves. We, we, we can't hide anything from God. Hebrew, Hebrews 4.13, of course, says all things are exposed and before the, uh, they're naked and they're exposed before the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. God sees everything. He knows everything, which is why worshiping in truth is, is, is so paramount. Because what he desires is that we stand before him and admit to him who we really are and finally be honest. No pretense, no deceit, total surrender. There are things that hinder that from happening in our life. It can be past, it can be present, it can be future, it can be past sin. Past sin may be holding us back. We, we don't get over that past sin or we're unwilling to, to leave uh, the lifestyle of sin. I was talking to someone recently and I'm, I was uh, sharing the gospel with him and, and that's what he said. He said, you know, I, I, I like my sin. I'm like, at least you're honest, you know. I said, well, I knew that. I actually, I, we were talking about that, and, and, and I, why, why will you not surrender your heart to Jesus Christ? And that's what he said, I like my sin. And I said, oh, young man, your sin is destroying you. Your sin will destroy you. It's, it, it is not a question of if, it's a question of when. We if we persist, it, you cannot. I've, I, I've, my, my whole, my children, their whole lives, I've always told them, you know, sin is like a worm for a fish. Man, it looks so good. But there is always a hook in it. There is always a hook in it. And we think that we can come up and maybe nibble on it a little bit and it won't affect us. Uh -uh. It's going to set. It's going to set. That's just the nature of it. It's just what it is. We can't wish things to be a certain way, and that will make them a, a certain way. It doesn't work that way. Sin is what sin is, and sin always destroys. And that, that will hold us back. That can hold us back. That will keep us from, from worshiping, from, from serving God in truth and being truthful before him. Present circumstances, maybe we don't like the, the direction our life is going. We don't like the direction our life has gone. And so we feel we have a better plan and, and, and we'll take charge, thank you, and, and we will make this thing go the way that we want to do. So we don't come to him. We are unwilling or, fun, or, or feel unable to, to give up the reins, to give up the control so we don't surrender our lives for fear of what that means or what that looks like or what about my plan. 
future concerns also do the same thing. We feel that unless we are uh, calling the shots, then we can't possibly attain whatever our hopes and aspirations uh, could potentially be. And all the while, the Lord is saying, no. I've died for you. I've risen from the dead. I am, I'm here to give you life. I know the thoughts that I have for you. I know the future plans that I have for you, and they are thoughts of peace, and they are not thoughts of evil. I have a future, and I have a hope for you. To worship in truth is submission. It is resignation to the will of God. It is submission to his lordship, to his sovereign rule over our life. It is faith in what he has said and what he has promised, that he will indeed bring it to pass. Of course, to worship God in truth is also to know the God of truth. It is to know his truth and love his truth because it is his truth that he has decreed to be the complete revelation of himself. Quite simply, worshiping in truth is to be who we really are and to live before him in total transparency. So that when we are actually engaged in worship, there's no pretense. Mary here is quite obviously doing that. She's really a great example of that. Unconcerned with what other people think of her. Unconcerned of what other people's opinions might be or how people might react. In fact, they don't react favorably. It says that Judas is objecting. All the rest of the disciples had the exact same objection if you look in the other accounts in Matthew and Mark's account. They all said the same thing. Here in John, Judas becomes the spokesperson, as it were, but they were all saying, yeah, she shouldn't have done this. But she, she, she has no pretense. She's unconcerned. A, a Jewish woman would never unbound her hair in public. The reason is, is because it was a sign of loose morals. She didn't stop to consider public reaction. She placed herself before her Lord in complete surrender. This is the adoration of one who has been redeemed. This is one who sees and knows what the Lord is doing in their life and is participating in it. Mary had learned to worship. Absolute surrender, total trust, complete confidence in his will, faith in his providence, and assurance in his goodness. Mary is acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord. Not who she wanted him to be, but who he actually is. In truth, the third component, purpose. The Father is seeking such to worship him. The Father is looking for those who will come to him in truth. The Father is looking for those in whom uh, their hearts are surrendered to his will. Those who will give up on their own will and accept everything in life as coming from his sovereign hand. That's the purpose. The Father is seeking such. Often we think of evangelism as, as leading people to Jesus Christ so that they will be saved. That's not the end. The end is so that they will become worshipers. You see, you can't become a true worshiper unless you are saved. But the Father is seeking worshipers, not just those who are saved. See, we were created for worship. All creation glorifies God. And all of us glorify God. And all of us, it says, well, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of 
God the Father. Everything in creation, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, will glorify God. That is why we have been created. The Father is seeking such. But how does that pertain to us now? <coughs> like we saw last week, we were created to glorify him. Therefore, to glorify him is our purpose for existence. That means wherever you are today, in whatever stage of life you happen to find yourself, exactly where you are, the Father desires for you to worship. I, uh, I have a friend. She, uh, she's caring for her elderly mother. mother sorry, mother. <laughs> Hello, mother. Hello, father. No. Um, <laughs> she's caring for her elderly mother, and uh, she's at the end stage of her life, her mother is. And I've been, I've been doing work uh, at their house, her and her husband, and her husband's at work, and uh, she comes in and out. She's off caring for her mother. She comes back, and every day she's giving me updates. And we pray about it and go to the, go to the Lord and go to the Word and so forth. And, and uh, as she's navigating through this, and of course, this is, this is, this is what honoring your parents, this is ful her fulfilling the fourth commandment. We all have that obligation. We all have that responsibility. We don't want to, you know, oh, well, it's Corbin. You know, that's that. No, no, no. God says do this. And so we do it. Right? She's doing all of this. She came to me the other day, and by the way, I asked her if I could share this, and, and she, she has given me her permission, but she came back and she said to me, and she was in tears, and I said, what? What happened? And she said, my mother came to me today, and she said to me, what good am I now? Why does God have me here? Of what use am I? What could I possibly do for him? And the Lord had just shown me, just that morning, I believe, the Lord had shown me a passage of scripture in Psalm 16, and it really resonated with me. And it just came right out. I said, you tell her, worship. What do you mean? Psalm 16, and the Lord is my portion. Psalm 16, verse 5, the Lord is my portion, and the Lord is my cup. You see, a portion is that which pertains to you, right? I was thinking last night, you know, to illustrate this word portion, it, I, I thought of, of pie, okay? It's kind of a silly illustration, but when, when, you, when you sit down and you're going to have pie with, with family or friends, and they, they give you a piece of the pie, right? They don't give you the whole pie. A piece of pie. Because that's your portion. That is, that is what has been given to you. Well, the Lord is our portion. So what the Lord has given to us has come from his hand. Therefore, it is according to his design, and it is according to his purpose. And the Lord is also our cup. That is, the cup is that which satisfies. When you're thirsty, what do you reach? You reach for a drink, because you know that will satiate, that will satisfy. So the Lord is the one who is our portion, that is the one who sustains, and he is the one who satisfies. When we can learn 
that every period of life is really a segment of and a part of the will of God for us and can still worship, then we realize what it means for God's priority or God's purpose in seeking those who worship him. God's purpose, it is the fulfillment of God's purpose. You see, where you are, the stage you are at, the stage I am at, is exactly according to infinite wisdom and, and, and sovereign design. Therefore, where we are is for our design, for our benefit, so that we can become worshipers. If God has set you apart, maybe, maybe, <coughs> I'm sorry, maybe you're under trials. Maybe you're in the midst of a trial right now. Maybe you're just entering into one, or maybe you're just coming out of one. Maybe uh, you're, you're persevering through sickness presently. Or even like my friend's mother near the end of days. Can you accept this, the assignment? Can you trust in his wisdom? Can you have confidence in his goodness, in the portion that he is giving? Give him your heart. Give him your affections. Give him your adoration. Give him all of your concerns. Give him all, be, all your problems. Lay those all down at his feet as an offering of worship. The Father is seeking such to worship him. It could be that God has laid you aside so that you could worship him unhindered. Take advantage of it. Allow God to reveal himself to you in a way he could not do any other way. If we do that, we are realizing what it is to be those who worship. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Keep your finger in John. We're going we're gonna to go back there. Second Corinthians chapter four. Chapter four. We're gonna we're gonna begin reading in verse fourteen. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus, and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So Paul here, Paul's exhortation. There are several things that he says in here, but he says we know. 
first thing. Knowing that, we know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us up. We know that. And that causes thanksgiving. For all things are yours, uh, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. We know that God has raised up Christ and he's going to raise us up, so that brings thanksgiving. Therefore, verse 16, we don't lose heart. Why? Because even though the outward man is perishing, the outward man is perishing. Can I get a hearty amen? The outward man is perishing. (laughs) Now, some of you younger people, you're like, oh, yeah, whatever. You old guys. I I used to say that, and I lost all my hair, and my body's falling to pieces, and Lord have mercy. The outward man is perishing. And then I have those who are, are a little further along than I am. They say, Lonnie, just wait. You have no idea. I was like, oh, great. Thank you. But hey, we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart because even though the outward man is perishing, the inner man is being renewed day by day. It's the inward man that is eternal. For, verse 17, for our light affliction. Now you might go, wait a minute. This is not light affliction. This isn't light. This is heavy affliction. (laughs) Our light affliction. He calls it light. Now, if anyone can say he had heavy affliction, it was the Apostle Paul. You read what he endured, and you stack up your affliction, not to diminish, but you go, yeah, okay. But it, that's not the point. Whether it's light or not is, is not, not the thing. What is, what is the point? That the affliction is working for us something. It's doing something. It's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. There's something far more exceeding. Paul says in Romans 8 that the present sufferings, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. It's not even worthy of comparison. It's working for us. Now, that's not automatic. There's a really, the whole key to this passage is the next word. So if you underline or circle or highlight, uh, highlight while. While uh, the, the outward affliction is working for us a, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. See, we must be looking at not which is seen, but what is not seen. Because the things which are seen are temporary. And the things which are not seen, they're eternal. The idea of worship is to orient our heart, our minds, our lives, and our hopes on God. He knows. He is working. His hands never leave the clay. 
He is molding, he is shaping, he is accomplishing, he is doing exactly as he has purposed. And it is exactly according to his design for those who love him. Mary sees this. Go back to John 12. Mary sees this. The rest of the disciples, they don't see it. Mary sees it. Why wasn't this sold? You know, you can contrast Judas and, and, and Mary here. Judas, he's all about outward facade. But he's all inward deception. John points out, by the way, when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, how many of them, oh, well, I know it's Judas. No one. Judas was the perfect hypocrite. No one ever suspected. In fact, he was so trusted, he was the one that carried the money back. There's no way it could be him. Right? John is giving a parenthetical here because he already, he's written this post-resurrection. So. But uh, Judas was the perfect hypocrite. You see, Judas was treasuring what was temporary. His eyes were not fixed on what was eternal. It was the exact opposite. Judas sought contentment in the world. And the more that we seek contentment with the things of this world, the more we become dissatisfied with God. But if our hope is in heaven and our confidence and our faith is placed in Jesus Christ alone we shall overcome you see Mary the very core of her life was Jesus Christ the very center of who she was now some people have Jesus as their core Others have him as just a component, just part. He's part. Yeah, I, I go do that church thing on Sunday. But the rest of the week, I'm, he's just part. I'm just, I add him to all my stuff. No, he is all my stuff. He's everything. I'm pouring out my whole life on him. I've staked my eternity, everything, on Jesus Christ. Because he is king of kings, and he is Lord of lords, and he alone can save. Judas, not, he's not alone. All the disciples join in. And, and, and look, look at Jesus. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the day, for the poor you always have with you, but me you do not have always. You see, they were clueless. Jesus is saying, look, she's doing something here. She sees something that you guys aren't seeing here. She's kept this for the day of my burial. They missed it completely. They, Jesus allowed Mary to anoint his body for burial pre-death. They misunderstood Jesus' mission, the disciples. Mary didn't. She saw it. She understood it. She wasn't on the Mount of Transfiguration. She didn't see Jesus in his glory. She didn't see him walk on water. She didn't see him say, peace be still, and the storm stopped. She didn't see all of the miracles, the feeding of the five. She didn't see any of that. 
But she saw what all the disciples missed. And by the way, Jesus told them several times that he was heading for the cross. He began to tell them in Matthew chapter 16, and on and on and on. You read through the gospel accounts, he says, and then Jesus told them again, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. Even one time, Peter rebukes him for it. But Mary, this is who he is. This is what he's doing. This is what he's come to do. I'm anointing his body. Why did she see it? And why didn't they? Well, I believe it's because every time that Mary is mentioned in scripture, she is, she is in a very specific place. And it's at Jesus' feet. You know in, John, or in, in Luke chapter 10, uh, she is at Jesus' feet when Martha was running around serving, right? But Mary chose the better part. In last week's passage, she falls at Jesus' feet. She comes out to Jesus and falls at his feet. Right? And then, of course, today, here she is once again at Jesus' feet. You see, revelation from God and adoration of God are intricately linked together. When you are at the feet of Jesus in worship, you'll see things others don't. When you are at the feet of Jesus, he gives you understanding that others don't receive. When you experience the, the, the intimacy with Jesus that Mary did, he reveals himself to you very often in a very unique, in a very personal way. What's the result? In Matthew, it doesn't, it doesn't record it here, but in Matthew it says, Assuredly, wherever this gospel is preached in the world, this woman and what she has done will be told as a memorial to her. She's the only one that got it. And I'm going to underscore that. Now you might, well, how does one measure success? The disciples are spending all of their time arguing about who is going to be the greatest. Even after the resurrection, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the nation of Israel? Are we going to, are we going to sit on thrones with you? Hey, we, let's get this thing going here. No, no, no. There's a memorial for a woman that no one knew from a small, obscure town that doesn't even exist anymore. But God reserves something for her because of her desire to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. William Temple, he was Archbishop of England uh, during World War II, the Church of England in World War II. Uh, everything I've read of this man is, is astounding, but he, he, he gives a, a definition here of worship uh, that I think really uh, I came across and really is a, a great a summary. It says, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness. It is the nourishment of mind by his truth. It is the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, and the submission of will to his purpose. And all this gathered up in adoration is the greatest of human expressions of which we are capable. Please stand with me.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your call on our lives. We thank you, Lord, for the revelation of your word. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness and your love towards us. Lord, we see that uh, you, uh, it is your purpose that we would worship you in, in spirit and in truth. Lord, that you are seeking such to do so. Lord, we lay our lives down. We give you our past. We give you our present. We give you our future. Take us, Lord, just as we are. And in doing so, Lord, may you find us treasuring you. May you find us, Lord, adoring you. May you find us, Lord, desiring all of your fullness. Reveal yourself to us in a very personal way, as only you can individually. We lift this all to you, Lord, and we glorify you, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>